We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the, mo- of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these often horrific events and the ugly truth behind it. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Ooh, Don Palumbo. This is such a cool room to be in. Thank you, Speakeasy. This is cool. Wow. This is a great place to tell a story of murder. And a I great feel so content. fancy. Thank you guys all for being here with us. And a big thanks to everyone who's taken a moment out of their busy lives to review us on iTunes. Don, I'm curious, what are people saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, this one kind of makes me blush and I'm kind of mad at you for making me read it. But it's uh, from Evelyn H3, 12 uh, in December. She said, best host. I love true crime anything. This is by far one of my favorite podcasts. I love the way Don and Jonah interact with each other and their feelings towards the cases. I'm not from around here, so it's awesome to listen to you guys talk about how things were or are here in the Midwest. I can't wait to enjoy more episodes and I will be anxiously awaiting the next episode. Crystal S09 said, A freaking amazing. I was told about this podcast on a Tuesday morning at work. As I had never been a podcast listener, I was hesitant. Oh, how happy I am. I went with my gut to start episode one. I started listening right away that morning. I was through each episode by Wednesday evening. I couldn't stop. I was obsessed. Don and Jonah are beyond amazing. I felt as though I was right there in each crime scene. Thank you. I look forward to all the coming episodes. Wow. I know. Why why would you make me read that? I'm like the most... uh, It's nice. We we appreciate you guys. That means a lot to us. Yeah, it does. It's so cool. You guys motivate us to continue to be better. And And as as a listener... It helps us, though. It helps us a bit in a big way. As listeners of Midwest Murder, you can directly help us reach new heights by taking a few moments to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. It's truly the best way for our show to get recognized and climb the podcast charts. We really do appreciate you guys. And it's not just for us to be boastful or to boost our egos. It It's because we live and die by an algorithm these days. It, it helps us uh, just kind of get to where, you know, it helps Midwest murder. So thank you. I also want to give a big, a big shout to the legendary truck stop shots crossroads in our quiet town of Minot, North Dakota is a little staple of our community for more than 40 years. It's shots crossroads. This mom and pop restaurant is legendary, legendary for being open 24 hours a day. They probably regret some of my 24 hour a day visits (laughs) at some point in my life. And I might have even regretted it too. (laughs) They serve gigantic breakfasts like the 99 hash brown combo, the big rig burger and larger than life caramel rolls. And FYI, if you are listening to this and you don't know what a caramel roll is, figure it out. Your local welcome pastry, to the Midwest. <laughs> yes, welcome to the Midwest or, or come to the Midwest because your local pastry makers have failed you. My favorite part about Shots Crossroads is that I can get all six food groups any time of the day with a side of ranch, mind you. Aren't they five? Five, no, five, no, there's five. there's five food groups plus pie, food group six at Shots Crossroads. So that's, that's fair. And they have Perrette pie. 
If they have anybody all the that's prepped. all the pie all day. Do. So big thanks to them for sponsoring <laughs> us today on Midwest Murder. I'm taking us back not too far. It's late 2010, early 2011. The top films right now during that during that time: Toy Story 3 and Alice in Wonderland. The Green Bay Packers beat the Pittsburgh Steelers 31 to 25. The MVP of the game, Aaron Rodgers. There was a 9.0 magnitude earthquake that was triggered, uh, that triggered a tsunami, eventually causing the Fukushima disaster. It's the second worst nuclear disaster in history. Here's a big one. Julia Louis-Dreyfus of Seinfeld, love Seinfeld. She receives the 2,407th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I don't know why that number is um, significant, but I, I like it. The you know, 2,407. 407. Star, but and they, they, they actually spelled her awesome. name wrong the first time and they had to redo it. So, <laughs> so actually it was the 2,408. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Fidel Castro resigns from the Communist Party of Cuba's Central Committee after 45 years of holding the title. And on April 17th, Game of Thrones, based on the fantasy novels by George R.R. R. Martin, premieres on HBO. It does it really seem like it was that long ago? Yes, but okay. it's coming back and it's like it never left. In these years, we also lost Amy Winehouse, Steve Jobs, and Elizabeth Taylor. Small town America holds a special place in our hearts. Whether we've lived in one or not, we tend to think of the city as big, loud, dangerous, corrupt, immoral, sinful, evil. The streets are dirty, the air is polluted, and no one really knows their neighbors. But the small town, we think of the small town as safe, Quiet, law-abiding, moral, virtuous, good. And there's nothing particularly seductive or alluring or sexy about a small town. Everything is neat and tidy, clean and shiny. The air is fresh. Life is simple. Neighbors take care of one another. And no one locks their doors. And we kind of think that all small towns are alike. In every small town, there's often a single central thoroughfare, Main Street. And the shops are small and run by people you know. There's maybe one bank, a couple of gas stations, a hometown health clinic, 19 churches, 17 bars. And if your checking account is overdrawn or your car's broken down or your kid fell out of the treehouse and needs stitches in his forehead, everybody in town knows about it. There's one school that everybody attends for generations. You, your parents, and your kids all had the same English teacher, the same football coach, and the same bus driver. In fact, they might have been the same person. There are two or three bars on the main drag, a cafe, a bakery where people meet up every day, farmers in town after morning chores to drink coffee and talk politics and weather and grain prices. And last Friday night's football game, townspeople meet up after work to share a beer or three, shoot pool. It's another day of living in small town. It's true. And the old cliche that everybody in a small town knows everybody else. And sometimes that can drive you a little crazy. But mostly what that means is that small towns make you feel like you belong. Small towns are human-sized places, and that creates a sense of belonging. You know you belong in a small town to the place and to one another. Our story on Midwest murder tonight takes place in Cooperstown, North Dakota, about as small-town America as you can get. Cooperstown has a population of about a 1,000 people who live in fewer than 500 households. Which is not, the Cooperstown, North Dakota is not the baseball, like, mecca. It is not at all. No, not even <laughs> not a little bit. It's a small, tight-knit community that is, as its own website proclaims, 
quote, dedicated to maintaining the charm and values of a rural American town. Sounds great. Our story starts in December of 2010, Christmas time, and all of North Dakota is blanketed in snow. During the daytime, bright winter sunlight glints off the snowbanks and frosted trees. In the long dark of prairie winter nights, warm light spills out from homes and businesses alike as they welcome friends and family in for the holidays. Christmas lights twinkle in the cold air and encourage holiday revelry. People in Cooperstown enjoy a season of family dinners and gift exchanges. Kids home from school, relatives come for a visit, friends dropping by, and no one needs much of an excuse to eat that extra cookie or two or to say yes to the offer of just one more at the bar. One of the citizens of Cooperstown who is especially enjoying the holiday season is Kurt Johnson. Kurt works for the Great Plains Transportation Institute, where he solves traffic and infrastructure problems. He also works with engineering students at North Dakota State University. Kurt is a highly respected, he's highly respected in the transportation industry. His colleagues call him, quote, a truly brilliant and kind-hearted man and highly intelligent and a good problem solver. They say he has a brilliant mind, a great sense of humor, and a gentle soul. Kurt Johnson is well-known and well-liked in Cooperstown. He has a lot of friends, like Pat Marazla, who he watches the Vikings with on Sundays. Two good buddies throwing back some beers, chowing on wings, chili, burgers. Kurt likes to hit up the two bars in Cooperstown, the Oasis and the Pit Stop. And he's not necessarily a hard partier. He just likes to get out and be social, to share that one-of-a-kind, small-town, dive-bar vibe to get together in one of those joints where everybody really does know your name. And this is just what he has planned for New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2010, in Cooperstown, North Dakota. Everybody is especially ready to get out and party this New Year's Eve because there's been a blizzard in Cooperstown for the past two days. Maybe there are no hard and fast plans, but there's definitely that kind of small town telegraph vibe. Everybody knows that everybody's going out tonight, being cooped up indoors for two days of 50 mile an hour winds and nearly two feet of snow, that'll do it to you. Cabin fever sets in and nothing sounds better than getting out and seeing your friends, having a few beers. Set in the middle of a pandemic. No, so, 2010, was no, that a pandemic? No, no I'm saying oh, yeah, like that's right, right now. Yeah. Here we are. Pandemic. So uh, Kurt Johnson figures he'll make his way to the Oasis that night. Sadly, he has no idea what waits for him in that bar on that cold, snowy New Year's Eve. Indeed, no one in Cooperstown knows what lurks in that bar, what has been lurking in their town for over three months now. Not just lurking, but festering. And not just in Cooperstown, but all over North Dakota, and for a long time. Sitting in the Oasis bar that cold, snowy New Year's Eve is a man named Daniel Walked. He's come to North Dakota from California, and he's brought with him a rancid and ignorant brew of racism, white supremacism, anti-Semitism, and hatred. doesn't matter where he came from. It matters that he came to North Dakota. He came to North Dakota to make a statement. He came to North Dakota because here he knows he has an audience. It may not seem like small-town, rural North Dakota would be attractive to a white supremacist like Daniel Wacht, but in fact, as journalist C.S. Hagen puts it, 
quote, militant and racist groups have hibernated quietly in North Dakota since the 1920s when the Ku Klux Klan grew bold enough to take out advertisements in the Fargo Forum. In fact, the KKK has quite a presence in Grand Forks in the 1920s. Known KKK members come from every business and profession in town, including banking, real estate, insurance, retail, contracting and building trades. There are hotel owners and barbers, farmers and bookkeepers, doctors and lawyers, architects and clergymen, all members of the KKK in Grand Forks. In the late 70s and early 80s, another white supremacist group takes root in North Dakota, the Posse Comitatus. Posse Comitatus is an extreme right-wing group that maintains that the county is the highest and only legitimate level of government to which citizens owe allegiance. Posse Comitatus members call themselves, quote, sovereign citizens and do not consider themselves subject to federal government statutes or proceedings. Posse members are also racist, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic and spew vitriol about racial purity and holy wars that will cleanse the world of anyone who is not white. They the sound po- fun. Oh, yeah. Great they time. They sound a lot of fun. Just, the Posse Comitatus movement in North Dakota achieved national attention in 1983 when Gordon Call engaged in a deadly shootout with the U.S. Marshal Service in Medina, North Dakota. As listeners to Midwest Murder well know, we covered that story in episode 11. Another white supremacist and anti-Semitic group takes hold in the Midwest in the 70s, the Creativity Movement. Formed in 1973 by Ben Claussen, the Creativity Movement argues that, quote, that race, not religion, is the embodiment of absolute truth and that the white race is the highest expression of culture and civilization. Jews and non-whites are considered subhuman mud races who conspire to subjugate whites. And it may not be widely known, but all these groups, the KKK, the Posse Comitatus, the Creativity Movement, as well as the American Nazi Party and the National Socialist Order of America are quite active in North Dakota, and their activities have been on the rise since the early 2000s. The Southern Poverty Law Center an organization dedicated to fighting racism and hate crimes, lists the following incidents in North Dakota since 2004. 2004, feces were spread across a mosque's door in Fargo. 2005, at least five swastikas were drawn on the University of North Dakota's campus in Grand Forks. 2008, a Jewish student at UND was harassed. In 2011, a monkey-like figure attached to a large inflatable rat was hung from a noose outside an American crystal sugar plant in Grand Forks during a labor dispute in an attempt to intimidate minorities working at the plant. 2011, racist quotes, swastikas, and anarchy symbols were written on the city hall, residences, cars, street signs in Harwood, North Dakota. 2012, a threatening anti-gay epitaph was written on the back window of a car that had rainbow bumper stickers. In Grand Forks. 2013, a man impersonating a Hamas agent threatened a synagogue in Fargo. And in 2016, Matthew Gust pled guilty to firebombing Grand Forks Somali restaurant, Juba Coffee and Restaurant with a Molotov cocktail. And those are just the ones we know about. Yeah. This list was so shocking when this came out during our research for this. It's, It's really scary stuff that is happening out there right in our communities. 
Perhaps the most well-known white supremacist controversy in recent years in North Dakota is Craig Cobb's attempted takeover of the tiny town of Laith, North Dakota. Leith, Cobb, actually. Leith, 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 mm-hmm. Leith North yep. Dakota. Thank you. Cobb is a well-known neo-Nazi, the self-proclaimed, quote, most famous racist in the world. Gross. In 2007, he founded Pod Blanc. Wait, hang on one second. If, if you have to give yourself a nickname, I feel like it kind of like negates it. Like it's, it's actually not, I mean, it's not cool anyway, but if you have to give yourself that nickname... Like it's it's not self, okay. Yeah, like a yeah. self a self applied nickname. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. you. You sound like an idiot. You, totally, unless you're a superhero. If you're the good guy, you make up your name. It's no, okay. It, no, no. I somebody still, else got to do it for you. Then I too? feel like somebody else has to give that to you. Well, Cobb yeah. founded Pod Blanc, a major video sharing website that he touted as an alternative to YouTube, which he mocked as JewTube. Very popular with white nationals, Pod Blanc is famous for showing horrific videos. One shows Russian neo-Nazis beheading and shooting Asian immigrants. Others show the torture of Orthodox Jews and non-whites randomly selected on public streets. In 2011, Cobb heads to rural North Dakota and begins to quietly buy ramshackle properties in the Leith area, about 70 miles southwest of Bismarck. In 2012, he announces his heretofore secret project on the neo-Nazi Vanguard News Network, VNN, online forum saying he hopes to create an all-white bastion of neo-Nazis and white supremacists in Leith, which he will rename Cobbsville. So not only is he racist, he's a fucking creative genius. Cobbsville. This is an open, he says, quote, this is an open invitation to all white nationalists to come and settle in this town. It should be noted that Cobb is inspired by the pioneer Little Europe movement, which openly encourages white supremacists to take over existing towns or communities and reestablish them for whites only, where, quote, racially conscious whites can survive and thrive against the imagined threat of the coming race wars. Pioneer Little Europe has a strong foothold in North Dakota. In 2017, journalist C.S. Hagen identified 11 towns in North Dakota considered targets for takeover by white supremacists. Those towns, Underwood, Carson, Kenmare, Washburn, Tioga, Newburgh, Valley City, Antler, Sherwood, Landa, and Laith. And it's all this, this hatred, racism, and violence, these white supremacy and neo-Nazi groups that have drawn Daniel Wacht to North Dakota. And Daniel Wack is a really bad guy. His rap sheet, literally as long as your arm, with more than 30 crimes and violations on it, including seven arrests for burglary and grand theft, five arrests for firearms or other dangerous weapons violations, seven arrests for possession, transportation, or sale of narcotics or other controlled substances, and multiple probation violations. He's even charged with using attack dogs on another human being. He's been in and out of prison in California for years before arriving in North Dakota. And it's in prison in California that Daniel Wacht gets involved with the Aryan Brotherhood. Which are proven to be really cool people. Ooh, scary. Scary people. That was sarcasm. Yeah. Oh, I got it. I'm picking up what you're putting down, fam. The Aryan Brotherhood is one of the oldest and most notoriously racist prison gangs in the United States. 
both inside and outside of prison. The Aryan Brotherhood focuses on drug trafficking, extortion, inmate prostitution, and murder for hire. To join the gang, prospective members take a blood oath. Acceptance into the gang is aided by a prospect's willingness to kill another inmate. The Aryan Brotherhood uses various terms, symbols, and images to identify themselves, including shamrocks, swastikas, and other racist, white supremacist, and Nazi symbols. I really don't appreciate their use of the shamrock. No, I'm, no and I actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't no, know that was I, a, I did I didn't not know, know that thing. either. Um, that's odd. Few. Because, because, you know, because the shamrock is actually, it, it's, it's a, a religious symbol because it's, it's, you know, it's got I the three. I thought good luck. Well, but it's, it's three, you know, that's the shamrock because it's, it represents the Holy Trinity, you know, the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Okay. So, I mean, that's what it actually stands for. So it's odd that it's they. It's been twisted by these guys. That's odd that time, they took Like that. everything yeah. else they touch. Well, so, swastikas were, I mean, those were originally uh, Native American, well, the shape not called a swastika was a, a, originally a native american thing well few in cooperstown know it but daniel walk's body is littered with aryan brotherhood tattoos his arms and chest bear an iron cross tattoo a spider web tattoo and barbed wire tattoos he's got tattoos of swastikas and other nazi symbols and the letters ftw which it's not what not, you're not thinking. for the win. <laughs> it's not for the win. It's not F the world. It's forever truly white. All indications of membership in the Aryan Brotherhood. Many I, people in I didn't, spider webs and barbed wire tattoos are indications or no? I wouldn't say exclusively I mean, I the barbed like wire tattoos. Pamela Anderson, but, like. You know, she uh, made that famous. Yeah, according to their research, they they say that the, a particular spiderweb tattoo in certain places hmm. does symbolize affiliate potential affiliation sure. with the Aryan Brotherhood. Interesting. So many, yeah, many people in Cooperstown have no idea. They they do know of one disturbing tattoo Daniel walked bears a machine gun on the side of his head. In fact, he's earned a nickname around town, Machine Gun Head. It's, yeah, it's clever. I mean, it's a lot of clever, a lot of clever ideas here from the racists, I guess. But and it's it's you know, machine gun head. It's not a nickname a guy gets from his buddies. You know, it's more a nickname people use as a warning. Like, have you seen that machine gun head guy around town? It's kind of weird, kind of creepy, isn't he? That be careful vibe certainly resonates with Jason Bolstead who meets Daniel Walked at a party on December 18th, the Saturday before Christmas. It's a small party. Jason's there with his younger brother, Joel, and some of his younger friends. He notices Walk's machine gun tattoo right away, and he thinks to himself, I don't want that guy around my little brother. So he approaches Walked, engages him in conversation, just trying to keep him away from his brother and the other younger people at the party. What Walked tells Jason Bolstead that night rattles him hard. Walk tells Jason all about his time in prison, that he's a member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Jason doesn't quite believe him. Quote, whoa, dude, what the fuck? But Walk is dead serious. In fact, he's not just bragging, telling prison stories and acting bad. Daniel Walk has big plans and he wants Jason Bolstead to join him. 
What are, you, are you leaving the party with machine gun head, Don? Probably not. No? No. Not I mean, even to get him away from like your little brother? And it's 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 not the... Well, I mean, maybe I should. I don't know. I feel like you put me on the spot. I'm putting it's, you right on the spot. Do you do you do you just clear machine gun head out of there away from the younger people? I do. I mean, it's creepy, but yeah. Walked asks Jason if he'd like to leave the party, come back to his house. And even though he's uneasy and has a very sketchy feeling about it, Jason agrees to go with him. It's creepy at Walk's house from the moment they arrive. Walk and his roommate, Russell Chamberlain, pull out guns, and there's a Keltec machine gun on the living room table, which is scarred by bullet holes. The, tab- the table had bullet holes in it. Dude, Jason says, what do you guys do? Do you just do you shoot shit all day? Walk then tells Jason that Russell Chamberlain is his number one prospect for recruitment into the Aryan Brotherhood. Jason starts watching Russell after that, and he notices that Chamberlain seems almost brainwashed. Walk tells Russell to make pizza for him, and he does. He tells him to wash the dishes, and he does. Almost like a dog who's been beaten into submission. And Jason's vibe about Russell isn't wrong. A month or so earlier, another impromptu party boiled up at Walk's house. This time with Walk, Russell, and Russell's friend and co-worker, Sean Richardson. Sean witnesses Walk and Chamberlain wrestling violently. When Russell gives Sean shit about texting his girlfriend all the time, Walked growls at him. Quote, quote, I could throw you down in the basement and tie you up right now without thinking twice about it. A few days later, Russell shows up at work complaining that his chest hurts. He lifts his shirt up to reveal to Sean a peppering of bruises, almost like puncture wounds on his torso. Russell tells Sean that Walked was, quote, teaching him how he learned to fight in prison. Russell Chamberlain may not be actually brainwashed by Daniel Walked, but Walked clearly has some kind of power over him. It's like a simulated prison shanking. At the party, as the party continues on the 18th, Walked drops the biggest bombshell of the night on Jason Bolstead. He tells him that he's in North Dakota, in Cooperstown, to start a movement. I'm going to start a gang here in North Dakota. I've got to do something. Blow something up or kill someone. It's got to be done to prove that the Aryan nation is here and here to stay. Walk goes on and on all about the 14 words. The most popular white supremacist slogan in the world stands for, quote, We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Oh, that, that's, that's the 14 that, that's words. That's actually the thing. That's actually their yeah. slogan. It's a real slogan. Okay. Yeah, it's not as quite as good as like, like Nike's Just Do It, but there it is. He says he's going to buy a shelter near Cooperstown that would serve as a base of operations for the Aryan Brotherhood. His brother Nico is going to come up from California to help start the gang. He's going to bring Watts pit bulls with him, the ones he used to attack people. Wacht calls his brother Nico, and together they pitch Jason hard on joining the Aryan Brotherhood. Jason doesn't bite. Quote, get the fuck out of here, he tells Walk. You're in North Dakota, and you don't get away with stuff like that here. Walked replies, it's got to be fucking done. This 
is the Daniel Wacht that has descended upon Cooperstown, North Dakota, a violent, hateful, malicious racist covered in neo-Nazi tattoos and looking to spill blood. This is the man who sits in the Oasis bar waiting on that cold, snowy New Year's Eve in 2010. Kurt Johnson walks in the back door at the Oasis bar around 9 p.m. on New Year's Eve. He sits down at the bar, orders a Coors Light from bartender Carrie Sad. There's several people he knows there that night. Blaine Larson, Scott Loge, Tim Vincent, Pat Fratell. Some of them have their wives and girlfriends with them. It's New Year's Eve after a big blizzard. Everyone's glad to be out of the house and having a good time. Kurt orders another Coors Light. It's the last beer he ever orders in the Oasis. Seeing him alone at the bar, Daniel, Wa- Daniel walked, also there alone, approaches and sits down next to Kurt. They talk for a bit. They're not total strangers, but Wacht is kind of hassling Kurt, nudging him in the shoulder and kind of getting in his face. Then, for no discernible reason, Daniel walked and Kurt Johnson go to the men's room together. When they come back out, everything goes to hell. As Blaine Larson puts it, quote, They came out, and all of a sudden, it was like Kurt turned around. He couldn't walk. He walked in fine. He came out like a total 90, just like something happened. What does like a total 90 mean? I I, I, I think maybe he meant 180, but, you know, like... Half of that? Half of that. Like a quarter turn? Right? Bartender Carrie Sad also notices Kurt's sudden and total intoxication. Quote, it was almost like Kurt went from zero to 60 in 45 minutes. Then, without provocation or warning, Kurt Johnson falls backwards off his bar stool and hits the floor, where he lies on the ground like a turtle. That's a big scene. And as Kurt lies helpless on the floor, Daniel walked, leans over to Carrie Sad behind the bar and asks her, Are you a Christian? Not waiting for an answer, Walked looks her in the eye and says, I'm the devil. You're serving the devil tonight. Carrie is so freaked out, she asks her husband to stand with her behind the bar for the rest of the night. Walked then turns back to Kurt Johnson, and he, Scott Loge, and Pat Fertel help get Kurt off the floor. They lead him into the bathroom again, bathroom again where they set him up in a stall. Evidently, Kurt manages to take care of business, and the four of them return to the bar. Back at the bar, Kurt can barely keep upright on the stool. His speech is completely slurred, and his words are unintelligible. Quote, I've seen Kurt more drunk than not, but not that bad, Carrie says. Carrie sad cuts Kurt off, tells him he's done drinking for the night. She tells him she's going to call the cops to come get him and take him home. Walks snarls at her. We don't need no fucking cops. I'll take care of this. I'll take him home. It's a disturbing incident in this small town bar on this holiday night. Not something you see every night. A man falling backwards off his bar stool, lying on the floor, unable to stand up again. A lot of people are really bothered by it. And 10 or 15 people get up, put their coats on, and walk out the door. It's a strangeness and a violence no one wants to be a part of on an otherwise happy New Year's Eve. Well, and probably, I mean, New Year's Eve, right? It's 
probably not a common occurrence to to have it end quite like that. I mean, no, I've, I've seen wasted people, and I I've never seen someone literally just flop off their bar stool. It's yeah, it's it's a, it's it's it, he, Kurt Johnson's in a bad way. Scott Loge and his wife Jody are two of those who are really bothered by the whole thing, and they leave the oasis shortly after Kurt's fall from the bar stool. With Scott gone, Tim Vincent steps in to help get Kurt out of the bar and into Daniel Walk's waiting burgundy GMC safari van, which is parked at the curb. Like rapist van, right? Tim Tim puts his arm around Kurt Johnson's shoulder and holds him around the waist. Tim Vincent is kind of worried. He's really worried about Kurt. He just, quote, he just, he looked like a different person. He just kind of looked, I don't know, he looked lost. He didn't look like himself. Once outside the bar, Vincent, still with his arm around Kurt and holding him by the waist, hands him over the ankle-high snowdrift to Daniel Walked. Walked then grabs Kurt Johnson by the collar of his coat and the waistline of his pants and throws him bodily into the back of the van, hard. Tim Vincent isn't happy with the way Daniel Walked manhandles Kurt. But he knows one thing for sure. Kurt Johnson is still conscious when he lands in the van. It's the last time anyone sees Kurt Johnson alive. New Year's Day is undoubtedly one of the laziest days in the United States. I'm saying it unofficially ranks as one of the top three most hungover days in the country. And it's a day off for just about anyone not working in the service industry. And for some people... The party continues into New Year's Day. For others, it's a good excuse to get together with friends, watch college football, and graze. In fact, New Year's Day in 2011, Pat Marazla intended on doing just that. His good buddy, Kurt Johnson, has invited him over for pot roast. But given the blizzard conditions, Pat isn't up for the drive. Pat calls Kurt to give him a heads up, but no answer. The call goes straight to voicemail. Kurt's always good about returning calls, the kind of person you hear back from within a few minutes, so way unlike me. But when hours pass with a re- without a return call, Pat feels things are a little off. On Sunday, Pat figures he's just going to show up at Kurt's house and see for himself what the heck is going on. Maybe Kurt's phone is down. When Pat arrives at the home of Kurt Johnson, everything looks eerily untouched. Frozen in time, snowdrifts left to build up, build up against the garage door. There are no footprints in the snow. Pat pokes his head in. Kurt's vehicle's in the garage. His dog, Lucky, really eager to see a familiar face. It's clear the animal hasn't been outside. He's out and he's out of food and water. Pat knows Kurt would never leave his dog home alone like that. Pat's concern is steadily growing, slowly turning into worry giving way to fear. He returns home that day, but none of it sits right with him. By Monday, he can't take it anymore, and he calls Murray Staka, Kurt's cousin. Pat tells him he hasn't heard from Kurt in days, tells him they had plans, tells him about Kurt's home. It's vacant except for the dog. Lucky. Murray spends much of Monday doing his own investigating. He calls Kurt's mom, Mary Lou. She hasn't heard from Kurt either. Eventually, Murray Staka learns that Kurt was last seen on New Year's Eve at the Oasis Bar, where he caused a bit of a scene and was hanging out with a man called Machine Gun Head. 
Filled with a gut-wrenching sense of dread, Murray Staka calls the Griggs County Sheriff's Office Tuesday morning to report his cousin and friend, Kurt Johnson, is missing. Sheriff Robert Hook fields the missing person report. Hook was elected as Griggs County Sheriff and officially sworn in on April 1st, 2008. He has more than 20 years experience working in law enforcement. And Robert, Sheriff Robert Hook starts making calls. Within a few minutes, he's on the phone with bartender Carrie Sad, who relays to him everything that had happened at the Oasis on New Year's Eve. Sheriff Hook learns Machine Gun's head real name is Dan. He's new in town and works at Cheyenne Tooling. Pressing on the lead, Hook makes his first contact with Daniel Wacht after getting his phone number from his employer. He calls Wacht, who isn't necessarily friendly to the officer. Hook is pretty direct with his opening question. Quote, do you know where Kurt Johnson is? Since you're the one who gave him a ride on New Year's Eve from the Oasis, Wacht replies, quote, I don't know. He was kind of being an asshole, you know? He wouldn't tell me where he lived when we were driving around, and then he said he wanted to drink more, you know? So I dropped him off in front of the pit stop. Hook asks, did you see if Kurt went in? Wacht growls back, I don't know. I'm not his fucking babysitter. Hook presses on. Did you see anyone else on the street? Wacht continues to evade. No, I didn't see anyone. Hook tells Wacht, I may have some additional questions for you. Can you come down to the station? Wacht wants no part of that. No, I can't. I'm driving out of town. There's a background noise. It sounds like Wacht is in a moving vehicle. Hook winds up the conversation saying, if I need anything else, I'll call you. And Wacht shines him, Wacht shines him off, says, okay, bud. So you got to know, Don, I think... Sheriff Hook is probably getting a feeling about machine gun head after that first conversation. What do you think? Well, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to give the guy a bad rap just because his name is Machine Gun Head. But like you said, he doesn't get that just from being a fun-loving guy. And you know, he's got the the Sheriff Hook. I mean, he's got twenty years of experience. You know, part of that is is intuition right it and, is and just yep. old-fashioned good old-fashioned police work. absolutely so if he's oh he i mean he has to know that something is amiss he's feeling and, it hook, and, so and, hook. And there, and, but there have been times too where yeah. you know a, a guy like machine First gun head maybe it's, absolutely you know where it's just this guy from out of town and and you know gets an unfair uh could be getting a bad rap right sure yeah yeah they haven't seen all the tattoos yet so they don't know Hook calls back to Cheyenne Tooling and requests Walk's info, his social date of birth, all that good stuff. And he runs it through NCIC. That's the National Crime Information Center. And, you know, because I'm a dad, dad guy and I like to dadsplain things for those who don't know. Oh, thank you. Not mansplain, dadsplain, big difference. My daughter loves it. What is NCIC? NCIC is a criminal records database allowing criminal justice agencies to enter or search for information about stolen property, missing or wanted persons, and domestic violence protection orders to get criminal histories and to access the National Sex Offender Registry. It's available to federal, state, and local law enforcement and other criminal justice agencies 24-7. A felony warrant for Daniel Walks pops up in California. It's a parole violation. The warrant says to consider Daniel Wacht armed and dangerous and to verify custody for extradition. So this is now Monday, January 4th, approximately 11 a.m. At this point, given everything he's learned, 
Sheriff Robert Hook knows this case is about to be bigger than his small-town sheriff's office can handle. Sheriff Hook contacts the North Dakota BCI office in Jamestown and connects with BCI agent Arnie Rummel. Which, he, and BCI is Bureau of Criminal Investigation, so it's, it's basically like, uh, almost like state police kind of thing. He gives Rummel the breakdown so that he can verify the intel and get back to him. Within a few minutes, Rummel calls back. The walked warrant is active. California wants to extradite. There's more. Walk's parole officer said he is a bad guy, one of the worst he's ever worked with. It's not long before BCI agent Arnie Rummel, a veteran of more than 20 years, is in Cooperstown. The Griggs County Sheriff's Office is ready to hand this case over and assist BCI. Hook emphasizes concern for Kurt Johnson, that Kurt loved his dog Lucky and would never leave him home for days or really just leave without telling anyone. Intel suggests Daniel Walked is returning to work the morning of January 5th for a 6 a.m. shift. Griggs County Sheriffs and North Dakota BCI set up surveillance at the residence of Daniel Walk the night before. And other than getting a six-pack of beer at the local store, Walk doesn't leave home that night. Given the information that Walk is a dangerous individual, agents feel it's too risky to serve the arrest warrant on him at his residence, an environment he can control. At 5 a.m. on Tuesday, January 5th, Units from the Griggs County Sheriff's Office, BCI, and North Dakota Highway Patrol meet at the Griggs County Sheriff's. A plan is set in motion to coordinate a controlled arrest of Daniel Walked in the parking lot of Cheyenne Tooling for the felony warrant from California. As Walked exits his vehicle at 5.55 a.m., he is immediately swarmed by agents and brought to the ground. Well, that, that's nice. He, so he's, um, he's a horrible person, but he's on time. He's got to get paid. Daniel Walked is arrested with a loaded gun in his back pocket. It's a 9mm Glock. Before he's transported to the Stutzman County Correctional Center in Jamestown, North Dakota, to be held on the California warrants, BCI agents Arnie Rubble, Arnie, Arnie Rubble, not Bernie Rubble, come on. <laughs> not Bernie Rubble. BCI agents Arnie, yeah, Arnie Rummel and Shelby Franklin interview walked. In fact, they chat for over an hour. By now, agents have already conducted several follow-up interviews with Cooperstown locals following Walk's initial statement that he dropped Kurt Johnson off at the pit stop. Nobody who was at the pit stop on New Year's Eve from the staff to the clientele, saw Kurt Johnson in the bar that evening. It's now 6.25 a.m. And we have something new and kind of exciting on this episode of Midwest Murder. Some of the actual interview files. So this is the first interview and the first clip I'm going to share. Daniel Wacht has a pretty strong opinion regarding his gun rights and he shares the story of his interaction with Kurt Johnson the night of New Year's Eve. I'm going to play that file. Okay, one of the things that you know is you're not supposed to have a gun, right? Correct? I, I, I assume so. I mean, I'm not supposed to have a gun in California according to this, but also according to this, I'm not, I don't, I don't really believe in any of that stuff, you know what I mean? I believe half, the, half these things that they have, they violated my rights in order to get them. They violated my rights in order to put me on parole. I served my time. 
Parole, by definition of the word, is supposed to be for the rest of the time if you get out early. In the state of California, even if you do day for day of all your time, they still put a three-year parole on you, which is technically illegal. They won't let you out of jail unless you sign a contract saying that you'll abide by these rules, which is technically illegal because it's a contract signed under duress. I mean, you have no choice for to sign the contract, otherwise they'll indefinitely keep you in jail. So... By saying I can't have a weapon, no, I have to disagree with you. I think I should have a weapon. I think I deserve to have a weapon as a citizen of this country. You know what I mean? So all this, that's nonsense to me. So New Year's Eve is when you guys just ran into each other at the bar or all that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to do him a favor. He didn't want me to do him a favor. Were, were you guys drinking together then too? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a couple drinks and then they cut him off. And then I had a couple drinks. He was still there. He fell on the floor. We picked him up. You know what I mean? We helped him to the bathroom, let him take a piss. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's trying to help the guy He's out. He's trying to help the guy out. And now, I already know that that's what this is all about because the sheriff's department called me yesterday looking for this guy. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know where the fuck he is. I'm not his babysitter. I didn't know he was in such a condition that I should have had to walk him into the bar. He's a grown man. You know what I mean? But now it seems like with everybody, the sheriff's calling me saying he was he was sick and this and that. I didn't. I, I don't know the guy. Yeah. Well, in like, fairness, uh, the sheriff was calling it anyone and everyone. Yeah, know? anybody that he called everybody that was in the bar that they knew was in the bar, they called to see if he's been around. But you're not arresting everybody that's at the bar. You're arresting me. No, but not on this. This came up afterwards, after you guys already found out about after because the sheriff called me, so now you know me. I'm, I'm just trying to think of what happened in my head. Okay. All because I tried to help this fucking guy out. Okay, so okay. after you took him back. Then what happened? Then I went home. You went home for the rest of the night? No. I went home, and then I decided to go out to my friend's house. Okay. It was down, it's downtown. It's not downtown. Down uh, this Highway 200. And I'm getting stuck in the fucking ditch. <clears throat> Sheriff's Sheriff Department had to come and get me. Did they tell you that the guy hasn't been around since you gave him a ride? Well, no. He just says they had, he, nobody's seen him. Yeah. I don't know if he hasn't been around since I gave him a ride. I mean, maybe yeah. somebody, obviously someone else has seen him. I mean... Because, I mean, nobody, the, the issue is nobody has. I mean, that's part of the... Or nobody says they have. Correct. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only reason anybody even would have called me is just a matter of because, it, uh, you know what I mean? I helped him out of the damn bar. Uh -huh. yeah. You know what I mean? If somebody else helped him from from that point, when I dropped him off, who's to know? You right, know? yeah. That's what I mean. They, and, 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 I mean, that's what we're, we're also following up to see if anybody... If you had any ideas of somebody that might have picked him up, I don't, or, I don't really know anybody in this town. If I would have known it would have been such a problem, first of all, I wouldn't even picked him, offered him a ride. Right. Second of all, I would have made sure he got inside the bar. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. yeah. I don't know who he knows. I don't know where he goes. He's, I'm not a damn babysitter. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I after I got that call from the sheriff yesterday, I knew. I, you mean I could already foresee the fucking process of events that's going on? I'm like, fuck! I know I have a warrant. You know what I mean? I knew this was all going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen with you guys drawing down on me. All you guys had to do was fucking call, you know what I mean? But obviously we already went over yeah. why you couldn't do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? But so did, were you friends with Kurt or you just no, ran into him? I have no idea who the hell okay. he is, you know what I mean? Oh, I have so, so, I have so many he's things. Kind of, he, seasoned criminal seems a little familiar with the position he is, he's in and knows knows how the cops operate. Well, he's familiar and he's with evasive. The, he's he's familiar with the position he's in because he got his law degree from the California penal system. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what happened. You know, so he's acting like he's got, you know, <laughs> he doesn't believe in any of those things. 
like and, the law, <laughs> I mean, basically is, is what it is, you know? And so it, it's, well, and, and every time, every time he lied, he said, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's every time he lied, you know, you think everything yeah. he said that, that preceded, you know what I mean? Was a lie. Right. It was a lie. Absolutely. Well, I, I got one more clip from Daniel walk to share. And, and if you thought that was good. So in this one, he'll discuss. Oh, a, yay. Yeah. A, He's going to discuss his views on federal and state laws as well as flags. And Machine Gun Head has some pretty strong opinions about lawyers. The government doesn't take anything. I pay state taxes, but okay. I'm not exempt from all government because the government doesn't have jurisdiction over the right. states. It shouldn't. Yeah. It's not supposed yeah, to. Yeah, that's how I understand the sovereign citizens. It's not the federal, it's just state. The state is supposed to be sovereign from the federal. You mean the feds shouldn't be able to come in here and, and if for some whatever reason you say on someone else for something else, you know what I mean? They should be able to say, we're taking over, you know what I mean? Like, fuck you, this is our state, you know what I mean? Their, their jurisdiction is really just 10 miles radius around Washington, and then any states, any uh, uh, territories purchased by the federal government, that's their jurisdiction. They should have no jurisdiction anywhere else. The only reason they do is because people let them. I mean, they can't. You enter into a contract with, with them, a, uh, a verbal contract with them when you when you when you acknowledge that they have some kind of authority. Sure. I mean, I don't know if you even noticed, like even in this court, there's no American flag in that court. In mean? the Greek setting? Yep. I guess I've never noticed. Well, notice it next time, or in, in any court. Go into any court. There's no show. You you can't show me one court that has an American flag in it. Actually, I do know one. No, nope. it's a municipal court. And what kind of flag does it have? It has the American. I think it has North Dakota. Okay. But around the American flag, um, probably 95% sure, whatever court you've seen it in, it has either a yellow or gold fringe around it. That's not an American flag as described in the Constitution for the United States of America. That's an admiralty law flag or a military law flag. Okay. Right? Neither of them should have anything to do with us mm-hmm. or me. I mean, you guys are obviously on the other side of where I am now. Yeah. But That's just interesting to hear it. Yeah, check it out next time. Go into this one right here. So, state law though applies, or in, under your rules, it doesn't. No, really. When you say law, what you're referring to is what's called a statute. A law really is is is, is only something that that infringes on the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of another individual. That's what's considered a law. You know what I mean? And if I do that to somebody, then I'm breaking a law, man, man's law. But you know what I mean? All these little statutes and infractions, those aren't by definition of law. They're self-serving to somebody else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If I'm not wearing a seatbelt and I get a ticket, that's not a law that says I should have to wear a seatbelt because, you know what I mean? I'm not hurting anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just an infraction in order for either the state to make money off tickets or to... to, to that's what I mean. Like, in a place like this, it can work. Okay. But in a place like Los Angeles, it can't work. You know what I mean? Especially because nobody wants it to work. Right. You got all the, you got the class separation, mm-hmm. and, and, and the rich people like the system. The working class don't like the system. Uh-huh. But the, when have you seen a working class man write a statute or write a law to self-serve him? You know what I mean? It's always to self-serve somebody else. Lawyers, bankers, uh, all, all that. Those are, those, those are the people that are benefiting from it. You know what I mean? Look at a lawyer. If I go to court, I have to have a lawyer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because if I don't, I'm gonna, I'm, 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 I'm gonna be dead in the water. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not even fair. But now this lawyer is getting paid five hundred dollars an hour just to talk. You know what I mean? Well, okay. Where, where does that make sense? 
You mean I break my fucking back for eleven fifty? You mean I could talk too? Well, because he went through the process and got his little law degree. But why does that say that that's the way it has to be? You mean why can't you just work and be just as successful as someone who went to school? You mean well because we're just as necessary as them. They make it feel like we're, that, that, that they're superior, they're more necessary to the to the system. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what if you stopped working and you stopped working? What if everybody stopped working? You know what I mean? Tell me there there's a lawyer, maybe in, in this county, but so like in LA, there's a lawyer that if he took everything away from him, he could survive. No survival skills. They're worthless people. You know what I mean? All they do is talk for a living and try to Oh, so okay. he loves lawyers and uh, clearly thinks that lawyers stand no chance in the coming Armageddon and apocalypse. Well, like, and lawyer apocalypse survival potential about zero point five, according to according him. According to him. So I, I really like his. I really like his quote of "I can talk too." Yep, but you sound like a freaking moron. I mean, so and if I if I hear him say, you know what I mean? One more time, I'm gonna lose it. I'm I'm gonna lose it. I I I, I can't handle it. But I do think. I feel like, like, you know, for instance, in North Dakota, the North Dakota Safety Council has probably spent a lot of money and research on, uh, you know, safety belt laws or in his words, an infraction, you know, because again, his, his there are no law laws, degree, there's only infractions. There's only infractions because he's not hurting anybody. But anyway, that's. So I could, yeah, and, and 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 also really cool that you know he can quote Thomas Jefferson, you know, with the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, so it's it's great, and, and really gets to fit that into his into his rhetoric. So it's great, and, and this rhetoric is really straight out of Posse Comitatus and other white supremacy hate groups. Daniel walked, he's drinking the Kool Aid, and he's trying to get these agents to drink it with him. Following the interview, agents search Walk's van front to back with a laser, an alternative light source that helps locate evidence. When they find ammunition that doesn't belong to the Glock, they apply for an additional warrant, one that allows law enforcement to search Walk's home for weapons and any other information. By 10 a.m. January 5th, agents are finished searching the van and awaiting the warrant for Walk's residence at approximately 1 p.m., the warrant to search Daniel Walk's home for weapons and ammunition is secure. And while he's on the way to Stutzman County, likely getting checked in at this point, BCI begins their investigation at 1407 Lenham Avenue in Cooperstown. Keeping in mind that Kurt Johnson is still missing, agents clear the house before initiating their search for weapons and ammo. As we know, Walk shares a residence with Russell Chamberlain. And by all accounts... In spite of being inhabited by two bachelors, their house is in a pigsty. Agents don't have a lot of trouble sifting through the multi-level home, carefully taking it, taking inventory of each bullet, spent shell casing, and weapon they find. During their investigation, agents make note of a love seat that appears to have been torn up. A large chunk of it is cut out and looks stained. Three hours into the investigation, Special Agent Shelby Franklin discovers and opens a plastic garbage bag. Inside the bag, a blood-soaked pillow. It matches the ugly mistletoe kind of fabric on the love seat, and the pillow is grotesquely saturated, still moist. Agent Arnie Rummel, Agent Arnie Rummel, his veteran experience showing, orders agents not to seize anything with biological material. Their warrant is for guns and ammunition only. They can continue searching but cannot take or touch anything outside the boundaries of the current warrant. Arnie Rummel has the sinking feeling their missing persons case 
is in fact a murder. At 7 p.m., the warrant to collect biological evidence as well as to search for the body of Kurt Johnson is approved. You know, good on good on him. It, it, because, big props. I, I mean, it's just so for, smart. But I mean, that's experience. You know, yep. good good on him for sure. Um, Arnie Rummel, uh, I, I didn't say, but he at this point in his career has been on over two dozen murder investigations. Uh, really, really great agent. Now, so now the agents are looking at the scene with different eyes. Agent Franklin notices a pair of muddy coveralls in the entryway, along with some muddy boots. He says to his fellow agents, quote, there's three feet of snow on the ground and there's three feet of snow and the ground is frozen under that. Where in the hell are you going to get fresh, wet mud? The only logical place in Daniel Walk's house is the crawl space. It's a room in the basement, approximately 19 feet long and eight feet wide, but only around five feet tall. It's packed with random stuff. There's a wagon wheel and metal sheets and other forgotten remnants. And the dirt throughout the crawl space is grayish, almost white, noticeably untouched, except for one spot that looks fresh and recently disturbed. Well, so clearly, not only is he very intelligent, you know, by by us hearing him on those uh, those clips, but uh, he's really got an eye for, uh, you know, making sure he's really sleuthy about things too, or not sleuthy, Details. but like just, you know, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna just this one little section nobody's just ever gonna section. notice. Nobody will tell. Nobody can tell. Agent Shelby Franklin gets the go-ahead to start digging. Dirt isn't soft enough that he can dig with his hands. He's hunched over on his knees, using a stick to loosen the dirt and a coffee mug to shovel it out. Get the Interesting. In, hang on. Interesting fact about the stick that he's using. There was like a for rent sign with one of those pegs that you stick into the yard. And the officers actually took that and broke it in half. And that's what he was using as the stick. So he's using a, that stick and a coffee mug to shovel it out. His knuckles scrape the low ceiling several times in the effort. Inch by inch, he digs until he finds a stack of dryer sheets. Franklin hands them out one by one, and he continues digging, finding more dryer sheets now. Every few inches, more dryer sheets, more digging, until suddenly, at almost two feet down, he finds a black garbage bag with blue ties. Agent Rummel comes in to assist. They carefully dig around the bag, anxiously wondering, could this be the body? of Kurt Johnson. When Agent Franklin lifts a little on the bag, he is surprised to see how light it is. The bag comes out of the dirt in the crawl space with ease. It's actually three garbage bags and they're tied shut. The bags are filled with dryer sheets. Carefully opening the bag, Agent Rummel is horrified to see an ear. Exiting the crawl space with the newly found evidence Rummel calls for Sheriff Hook, who knows Kurt Johnson by sight. One look in the bag, and Sheriff Robert Hook is 100% certain. It is the severed head of Kurt Johnson with a bullet hole square in the middle of the forehead. A severed head with a bullet hole in it leads law enforcement to one very easy conclusion. They no longer have a missing persons case on their hands, but a murder case. But to fully understand what happened to Kurt Johnson requires the expertise of a forensic pathologist. 
A forensic pathologist is a medical specialist, a doctor specializing in death investigation. Forensic pathologists are brought in on selected cases to, to perform autopsies, examine the body for internal and external wounds. They examine the organs and tissues for the effects of the wounds, as well as for diseases. Many forensic pathologists also have specialized knowledge of bodily fluids. The gunshot wound in the middle of Kurt Johnson's forehead is peppered with tiny puncture wounds that look like little red speckles. These speckles are known as stippling, and it means the gun was close enough when fired into Kurt Johnson's skull that fragments of gunpowder and metal from the bullet, very small ones, came out of the barrel along with the bullet. These fragments impacted his forehead a fraction of a second before the actual bullet. When a gun is only two to three inches away, there might be actual carbon residue or soot on a victim's face with a very tight pattern of stippling. The further away the gun gets, the larger the pattern of stippling. The speckling on Kurt's face starts near the hairline and goes all the way down to the middle of the nose. This indicates the weapon was no more than two feet away when fired, perhaps even as close as eight or ten inches. There's also discoloration of the inner eyelids caused from the bleeding from the damage to the skull and brain. The bullet went through the skull, fracturing bone on the way in traveling down the middle of the brain slightly to the left, passing through the cerebellum, the portion of our brain that controls balance. On its way through the cerebellum, the bullet also injured part of the brainstem. The brainstem controls all bodily function. Your heart rate, hormone levels, respiratory rate, even your consciousness is involved in the brainstem. As the bullet passed through the back of Kurt's skull, it broke into two parts, the bullet jacket and the bullet core. The bullet core went all the way through and lodged into the muscles in the back of the head that support movement. The jacket was recovered in the cerebellum. The condition of the brain and evidence of the wound show circulatory functionality at the time of the gunshot. It's likely Kurt's heart continued beating for another minute or two after the fatal wound. Given the smooth margins of the cuts along Kurt's severed head, it's evident a very sharp object was used. The cuts are circumferential, meaning they go around the entire outside edge of a round or curved object, like a neck. All the main arteries are exposed in Kurt Johnson's neck, as well as the spinal cord and the spinal canal. It's a relatively clean cut across the actual bone of the spine. However, it's not a single, straight cut. It took a significant effort to get it done. Although the instrument used was very sharp, it's not one big cut that just went through Kurt's neck. The number of superficial wounds show as much. There's more than one kind of movement from the hand or weapon that was used. Something else that stands out is the lack of any purple blood. There are no hemorrhage or hematoma formations. This suggests there was no circulatory function at the time of decapitation. The many superficial wounds around the head and underneath the chin of Kurt Johnson show no signs of bleeding, no blood clot within their depth. All of this, the circumferential cuts, the exposed arteries and spinal column, the lack of purple blood and blood clots, all of this essentially proves it was a post-mortem decapitation. And it would take a massive strength to get a knife through the spinal bone. The forensic pathologist assigned to the Kurt Johnson case, Dr. William Masello, 
says it would likely take the force or pressure of pounding or stepping on the knife to actually push it through bone. The implement used to cut through Kurt's spinal bone would also have to be massive. Marcello says that cutting through such a bone normally takes something like a saw or a hatchet, even a medieval broadsword. Also taken from Kurt Johnson's head is a sample of vitreous fluid. Vitreous fluid is fluid that's inside the eye. It keeps the eyeball round and is responsible for transmitting light from the outside to the pupil and is, and it enables us to see. The vitreous fluid can also be tested for blood alcohol levels and is in fact a more reliable test than a breathalyzer or a blood test. The BAC performed on Kurt Johnson's vitreous fluid reveals a massively high blood alcohol level of 0.45, nearly seven times the legal limit. It's a level so high, it's enough to be fatal for most people. Remember that time that in our intro we said we will not shy away from the morbid details? That's, that's uh, wow. So there was your warning, but that's interesting. So a, a BAC of point 0.54. 0.54, you know, the legal limit is 0 0.08. Went up until like, what, 18, 20 years ago. Well, probably 15, 16, 17 years ago, was, it was 0.1, right? So yeah. even that, I mean, so even if you use the, the old one, 0.54. Well, right, and it's hard to imagine how Kurt Johnson achieved a BAC of 0.54 from a couple of Coors Light beers. And no one knows if perhaps Kurt had been drinking before he got to the Oasis. Did but, they, oh, sorry. But witness after witness testifies that he did not appear drunk when he arrived at the Oasis and appeared to become completely and dangerously intoxicated in a very short period of time and having only consumed a small amount of alcohol. Well, Something he, he, doesn't he add the, up. Right, because he went to the bathroom with, what's his face? And, Machine gun head. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. And, so, I mean, so how, I, I, I don't know. Thank you. So, one thing seems certain, or it seems certain to me anyway, Daniel Wacht was on the hunt that New Year's Eve in Cooperstown, North Dakota. He wasn't on the hunt for a good time or friends to party with. No, he was on the hunt for something to blow up or someone to kill. To prove the Aryan nation is here and here to stay. It's not the story you suspect of a small town, of a small town bar on the main drag on a holiday weekend in America's heartland. Sadly, it is one we discover on Midwest Murder over and over again. Now, Walk never strays far from his story that he dropped Kurt Johnson off outside the fishbowl the pit stop, excuse me, it changed names during the course of the trial, so it's the pit stop. But And then he got his van stuck on the highway en route to his friend Richard Sutcliffe's house. He was stranded until after 3 a.m. when he finally called Highway Patrol to come and save him from freezing to death. And despite Walk's pleas of innocence, there is an insurmountable amount of evidence connecting him to the murder of Kurt Johnson. The bloodied love seat with sections cut out, bloody pillows, numerous firearms, all the materials used to clean the murder, the muddy coveralls, the bloody boots with his and Kurt's DNA, and a collapsible military-style shovel presumably used to dig the hole, as well as bullets and their spent casings. In fact, one such bullet casing, a 9mm golden saber, 
The same that was found in the skull of Kurt Johnson was found on a special ledge, as if it were some sick trophy of Daniel Wacht delivering on his murderous plan. The gun was in his pocket, the casing was in his bedroom, the ammo box was in his living room, and that casing and that bullet were inside the skull of Kurt Johnson in his basement. One other interesting fact, they were not allowed to use this in trial. However, bomb-making materials were found in Wach's home. Fuse cords, a canister with black gunpowder and marbles, uh, with black powder marbles and gunpowder. Suffice to say, Wach's alibi is flimsy at best, and there's no other potential suspects. His roommate was verifiably out of town, and no one else saw Kurt that night after Wacht unapologetically tossed him into his van. A division of Verizon Wireless called Selco Partners is used to acquire information regarding the phone records of Kurt Johnson. At 12.01, New Year's Day, Kurt Johnson's phone stopped communicating with any cell phone tower. Cell phone records also place Daniel Wacht in the Daisy area as well as Crosby, Minnesota in the days following the murder. And the prosecution calls over 30 witnesses. One such witness, my personal favorite, the jailhouse confession witness, Robert Chavez. Robert Chavez is on the, on the same cell block as Daniel Wacht. He's the first person Wacht spoke to. He was asking him questions about the facility. He starts discussing his case. He had a feeling, Wacht, Wacht had a feeling law enforcement was going to come for him. He said 20 agents came up and arrested him. Wacht tells Chavez he intended on getting into a shootout but couldn't get to his gun because it was in his right back pocket. He also wanted to know, Wacht wanted to know if authorities could access his conversations. Wacht told Chavez he was a member of the Satanic Skins, a radical racist organization, and his nickname was Berserk. The phone call he made was his main concern, and he tells everybody he didn't do it, and the government is out to frame him. Well, duh. I mean, listen to him. Another detail that comes out during the investigation is that Daniel Walk's phone is listed under the name Rudolf Hess. Anyone know him? You'd be quite the historian if you recognized the name, but I'll tell you who he was. Rudolf Hess was the third in command in Nazi Germany. The defense argues hard that evidence was contaminated, that other potential leads weren't followed, that he didn't leave after the murder, even though he had every opportunity to do so. Uh, Why didn't Daniel Walk take off back to California? It doesn't make sense that he would stick around after killing Kurt Johnson. After seven days of trial and a decision period of about three hours, the jury finds Daniel Walk guilty for the murder of 54-year-old Kurt Johnson the verdict came on what would have been Kurt Johnson's 56th birthday. Tragically, to this day, the body of Kurt Johnson has never been found. The only thing I can't get over is, is the why. Why did Wacht choose Kurt Johnson? Did Wacht just leave his house that day knowing he was going to kill someone? Or was it simply opportunistic? We understand his motive to kill, but not specifically his motive to kill Kurt Johnson. Sources for this case? Hang on. Oh, I, oh. Have, I have questions. Oh, yeah, go. I have Sorry. questions. Jumping right into it. Did they 
did they ever search or did they ever, you know, if, if his cell phone records placed him in Crosby, Minnesota, do, do they know if they ever searched? Yeah. Significant efforts were made to find the body of Kurt Johnson, um, helicopters, search parties, dogs, and the cell phone tower cannot give you a precise location. Just it's, the area. It's, it's kind of uh, approximate and it's in an area. But yeah, unfortunately. Did, did they ever run a toxicology um, report on, there, on Kurt's from the visceral fluid or anything like that? Uh, from the vitreous fluid. Or vitreous, it, not yeah, visceral. Yeah, it's, from the vitreous, vitreous fluid, sorry. there was no toxicology reports included in the autopsy report from Macello that indicated uh, that Kurt was drugged. I guess if he was drugged, and, and no aspect of Kurt being drugged is ever talked about during the investigation files that I received or during um, anything that came from the um, the forensic pathologist. So it, it seems like something happened when he went into that bathroom. But if he was if he was drugged, it was with some sort of high potent alcohol because sure. that BAC was so high. If he was drugged. So and then. What, where is, where is he at now? Where is he at to this day? Like, Walked. is he, yeah. I'm not sure where he's, he's in prison okay. somewhere. He, in, he yeah, yeah, he was sentenced forever. Sure. Yeah. And then his, oh, the biggest question of all, what happened to Lucky? Where's oh, Lucky the dog? Luck, Lucky, um, likely went with one of Kurt's I friends sure or family. So. Yeah. I sure uh, hope Kurt, so. Kurt has survived. He has children and stuff. So, sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sources. This case tonight was co-written by Dr. Sean Antegni and was predominantly based on actual investigation files and court transcripts obtained by open records requests. Additional sources on the history of hate groups in North Dakota include the High Plains Reader, the South Dakota Journal of History, and the Southern Poverty Law Center, and the NCIC. Also used on this day.com. Big thanks to Eric Michael Anderson for recording the awesome intro music for Midwest Murder. Also CJ Wynn for writing that intro into Nomad Design House for our rad logo. And a huge thank you to Shots Crossroads, our sponsor right in the heartland of the Midwest. You're always going to find a reliable truck stop and ours in Minot is Shots Crossroads. You can check them out. Shotscrossroads.com. They're open 24-7. So you don't have to be in Minot to appreciate and love and recognize Shots Crossroads. If you've got friend or family there, send them a gift card. Hook them up. Let the truck stop. Shots Crossroads know you appreciate their support of Midwest murder. And never forget, no order is complete without a side of ranch. And how much ranch do they make in a day? In one once in day. one day, so because nothing says Midwest. I don't know what like the ranch, ranch the ranch consumption record of the world is, but I'm guessing Minot is is right up there for towns of its size. So shots crossroads in Minot, eight gallons of ranch a day is is what the uh, people going to the truck stop consume. So whether you're eating breakfast, whether you're eating a burger, lunch, dinner, two a.m., one a.m., one p.m., shots crossroads is there to take care of you. Thank you. This is Midwest Murder. Thanks, guys. 